uh, warm welcome from uh, me as well. My name is Peter Comont, as um, hopefully has been announced already. And uh, if you're new, please, and, and you're thinking you'd like to know more about what's happening in the church, do please sign up to the um, uh, uh, to to uh, uh, using a QR code that will appear at the end of the service. I hope it doesn't have to appear now, um, so that we can get to know you and you can hear more about what's happening in the life of the church. Um, I don't think anyone, though, seriously would question the observation that we live in stormy times. It seems to me that every year since the Bre Brexit revelation, uh, revelation, it was a revelation, referendum of 2016, every year since then that's the, the clouds have grown darker, first uh, government was thrown into disarray because no one could find a way to deliver Brexit. Uh, uh, finally, they found a formal, former rabble-rousing journalist um, and entertainer to become prime minister, um, which was never going to end well. Um, then, uh, then a pandemic, the worst one for 100 years, came. And then there was war in Ukraine and skyrocketing, skyrocketing fuel prices and cost of living. We were already at a perilous stage of the economic cycle, but those factors have made economists think that uh, recession is almost inevitably and potentially a very deep one. The Office for Budgetary Responsibility said it's hard to escape the conclusion that the world is becoming a riskier place. And then the Queen died. And to be honest, my initial reaction was pretty undramatic. She was old. We'd been expecting it for her to die for at least a, a year, I think. Her role was merely symbolic. She'd been increasingly withdrawn from public life. Her successor had been fixed before I was born. And uh, he was a well-known person. There are not likely to be any great surprises. Um, my sense was that anyway... Frankly, most people in Oxford are slightly more on the Republican side than anything else. Within an hour of the news breaking, I uh, was in a pub and the young barman was quizzing me intently about what I thought. He was clearly um, rocked, confused, disoriented and shocked. And so it has gone on. The, the cues that, to view the coffin have been immense. I'm old enough to remember the death of Diana and the shock then. That shock was grief. It was anger that a beautiful and obviously vulnerable woman had apparently been mistreated and uh, harried to, to an untimely death. She, she stood in those days for everyone's sense of vulnerability and, 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 uh, 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 and that fear that we will be uh, abused. But the mood today is not like that. Overwhelmingly, people in the queues said that they wanted to express thankfulness even more than grief. There's a sense that, that the Queen has been an anchor for the nation in a stormy world. And now that anchor has lifted. You know, there's something very, very important that happens in stormy times. Heretics get persecuted. 
up and down the country, there have been a few brave Republican protesters, uh, and they have been arrested when... Actually, it seems to me, as far as I can see, that peaceful protest of that kind is perfectly legitimate. Historically, you go back in this country and uh, elsewhere, you'll find that, uh, that in times of unsettlement, there are witch hunts, witch purges. When society feels uncertain and is desperately looking around in a relatively irrational way for someone to blame and historically, Christians, again and again, though they've sometimes been the persecutors in those circumstances, they've often been the persecuted. And the letter to the Hebrews we began to see last week is written in a stormy moment in history. The best guess is that it was written to Christians who were in Rome in the early years of the reign of Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was tyrannical, he was self-indulgent, he was debauched, make no comparisons with any recent leaders. Um, he, he, he was never securely in charge. It always felt a bit vulnerable. And uh, when in AD 64 a great fire broke out in Rome, which was popularly thought to have been started by Nero, possibly correctly, nobody knows, but to redirect that popular anger in that unstable time, Nero found the perfect thing. Let's find a scapegoat group. Not Republicans this time. Let's make the Christians a scapegoat. Some of you know the story. He blamed them. He had them burned alive for public entertainment. There was a terrible persecution that broke out. The writer to the Hebrews says in uh, chapter 12, verse 4, that these Christians have not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. So it seems to have been written before that terrible moment, because frankly he couldn't have written it afterwards. But probably in the period when it was starting to look distinctly stormy, and anyone with eyes to see could see it was going to be difficult. And the temptation that these Christians in Rome had was... was, was to slip away into the background. To stop being quite as distinctive as they had been up to that point. Specifically, some were, seemed to have been suggesting they could, they could just slip into a kind of Jewish way of life. Maybe they could even, they could even worship Jesus, but within... The, 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 the Jews who were a well-recognized group in Rome because Judaism was a permitted religion. It was allowed. If you were under that banner, you had legal protection. Christianity had no such protection. What does it matter then if we just slip back into some of those old Jewish rituals, if we, if we just identify uh, with the Jews. We, we can quietly worship Jesus on the side even if we want to. But at least we'll be protected under that banner. 
And uh, the writer of the Hebrews is going to just say to us again and again and again, that is impossible. It is a massive temptation in stormy times to slip into the background, to just be slightly religious, slightly spiritual, but not to take any stand that will, uh, uh, will make us stand out as an identifiable separate group. It's a massive temptation because in stormy times, people are always looking around for someone to blame. But it is not possible. Because worshipping Jesus, he will say, is so radical, so different, so unique, so completely satisfying, so liberating, so life transforming, and in fact, so, so, so much the only hope that any human can ever have. You can't slip into the background. You can't just become a sort of slightly more religious version of society. You can't hide in the crowd. We must be prepared to be labelled as heretics. In Hebrews 13, at the end of um, his letter, he, the, the writer says, it is not by accident that Jesus was crucified, as he puts it, outside the city, the city of Jerusalem. That he was formally cast out of the community of his day, both the religious and the secular But he was crucified on a hill outside the city. Verse, Hebrews 13 verse 12. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. So then let us go to him outside the camp. Bearing the disgrace he bore. It is not possible to try to, to, to hide and to become a, a, a not distinctly identifiable group. Because like Jesus, we have to stand up and be counted and accept that some will label us as heretics. That's the context then. And um, uh, Hebrews 1 began to introduce us to that. We saw last week in the first few verses as Jesus as unique in all of history and all of creation. But he continues with that theme through the rest of Hebrews 1. And then at the beginning of Hebrews 2, he says this, We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. We must pay careful attention to this, he says. There's a sense of focus, concentration, mental engagement. If you're, if you're someone who doesn't think much about life, who, who likes to go with the, with the flow, then he's saying to us very clearly, we won't be followers of Jesus for long. Just won't happen. Our hearts are too fickle. Our desires are too strong. Our culture is too hostile or apathetic towards Jesus 
conformism to society is just far too tempting. It just won't happen if we're not paying attention. Paying attention, he says, to what we've heard. A message that has been heard. And remember, it is more than just words, words, words. We, uh, we looked at that last week. It is a message about Jesus. It is the true Mona Lisa, not an empty, uh, empty picture frame. And then he uses a very interesting uh, word. He says, so that we don't dr- drift away, as the uh, NIV translates it. It's literally slip off. It can be used of snow slipping off a roof. You know, you've seen it. Looks that it's there one minute, and the quiet thaw is going on underneath, and then suddenly crash. That's what happens to some people. I've seen it. It can be used of a ring slipping off. A finger, um, some, uh, a little while, or some while ago now, uh, uh, my wedding ring got too small for me, and I took it off. I'm never going to get it back on my finger, and Judy and I haven't got round to, to, re- to replacing it. But um, imagine if I was just working one day, and uh, without me realizing, I looked down, and it had gone. It slipped off. That's, the, that, that's, that's a, an image that sometimes it goes, goes with that word. You were getting on with life, not giving any attention to your Christian life, not paying most careful attention. And perhaps you'd stop reading your Bible, perhaps you'd stop praying, perhaps in time you'd stop going to church or it wasn't, wasn't the highest priority, so you become sporadic. Perhaps you hadn't thought to think carefully about the, the inevitable crises that come your way um, And you just let the world's answer to all your problems slowly, slowly, slowly take over. And then one day you look down and there was no Christian faith at all. I wonder whether you believe that could happen. Because one thing that more than 30 years of pastoral ministry has taught me is that it does. I can think of presidents of Christian unions. I can think of leaders in churches, elders in churches. I can think of pastors And I know there are difficult theological conundrums about perseverance of saints and all of those things, and we'll look at them in a few weeks' time. But right now, I want you to feel the weight of that warning. Like wedding rings can slip off fingers. People can drift away. Actually, the most prominent way that the word is used is an even more vivid Imagery Actually, it, it potentially fits with the pay more careful attention because uh, the, the verb used to pay more careful attention could be used of mooring a ship as well. You can imagine the sort of the connection. Make sure you moor that ship well. That's the word. And then the word drift away is used in various places to describe what happens if you don't. 
the current just quietly loosens the rope. Nobody notices. And it starts to slip and is soon trailing in the water. And the boat slips away. When I was a child, I, I uh, used to read Arthur Ransom books. I don't think they, he gets read these days. The Swallows and the Amazons. There's one called We Didn't Mean to Go to Sea. It fascinated and terrified me because here was a group of children with an adult looking after. They were on a boat sail, sailing in a river estuary. Um, uh, but they ran out of petrol, so they anchored the boat and the adult went ashore. And now the children are just on their own in the boat. And the tide rises. And the anchor starts slipping. And the anchor, uh, they then try to reset the anchor and they let go of the anchor rope. And then the mist comes down. And then they see that they're right at the mouth of the estuary, but there's some dangerous rocks. And frankly, the only safe way that they can uh, keep themselves from the rock is by actually allowing the boat to drift out onto the open sea. And then a storm blows up. And the only thing they can do is run before the storm. And then they're in the middle of the sea and not, not in sight of land. For a child, it's a terrifying story because you started so safe and domestic and now they're on their own out on the open water. But that's exactly what our writer wants us to feel. Be careful. Pay most careful attention then, he says because if you haven't learned the right not to moor your boat, if you've not stopped to think carefully, then you will drift away. What do we need to pay careful attention to then? As we read the second half of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if, if everyone here felt that's a bit weird and that's a bit foreign. First of all, there's angels that feature again and again in chapter 1. The reason for that seems to be that there was a strong and deep uh, tradition that angels had, had given the whole of the Old Testament message. They were the messengers. Angel means messenger. They were the messengers of the Old Testament message. And therefore, we, we, respecting the Old Testament message means respecting angels. And what he's going to say to us is actually, if you respect the Old Testament message, then yeah, by all means... Be respectful of angels, but worship someone else. The whole Bible, he says, in uh, the second half of, of uh, Hebrews 1, the whole Bible expects a man who is God. Now, I'm going to 
ask you to pay attention and to, uh, uh, to concentrate now because we're going to have to work a little bit hard. And on many Sundays I'd feel embarrassed about that except for what the writer of the Hebrews has just told us. So buckle up and uh, let's actually have a look at Hebrews chapter 1. Many people think that Hebrews chapter 1 just collects a set of random quotes from the Old Testament to make Jesus look great. I want to say to you that he's not doing that. He is doing something far more coherent and far more important. He is bringing together the whole message of the Old Testament and showing us how it fits together. First, he says, for to which of the angels, there's the angels for you, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. He's quoting from two bits of the Old Testament here. Psalm 2 uh, is the the first bit he quotes from. Uh, You are my son, today I have become your father. And Psalm 2, when you read it, is, is describing a man, a human being, who is anointed as king, who will rule the whole earth, who will, who's, God will make the, all the nations his inheritance. The whole earth will become his possession. He will utterly vanquish his enemies. This is a king such as we have never seen before, Psalm 2, called the Son of God. 2 Samuel 7 then adds something to that. Speaking to King David, the greatest king of, of the Old, Bible, uh, uh, Old Testament, um, uh, uh, God says to him about a future king, his kingdom and his throne will be established forever. This is what it means, um, uh, the content behind, I will be his father and he will be my son. As his father and he as my son, says God, will reign on a throne forever and ever. This is a king such as no one has ever seen, who rules the whole earth, who lives forever. The whole of the Old Testament expects that son to be worshipped. He goes on to say, unlike the angels. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship, let all God's angels worship him. In, in speaking of angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his, serv- and his servants flames of fire. Now, with angels, he's saying it's simple. Psalm 104, verse 4, he quotes, they're a puff of wind, they're a fl- flickering flame. Let's, let's get that out of the way. But angels, he says, themselves worship someone. Now, one of the things that has got um, uh, some Bible scholars upset is that, um, well, first of all, that the quote is not found in the, uh, in the Bible. That's a little bit awkward. Except that it is there. Deuteronomy 32, 43 in the Greek translation has it. And actually, in the 1940s, they found a whole lot of ancient, more ancient Hebrew manuscripts of the, the Bible. And lo and behold, there it was in the old, some of the oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible. So it's actually in the footnote of the NIV, I think, still, in Deuteronomy 32, 43. But it should be right there in the Bible. It should read, um, uh, let me say, uh, it should read, let's see if I've got it. 
Rejoice, you nations, with his people. Let all God's angels worship him. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and his people. So there it is. Angels are to worship. But it looks like they're to worship God. That's straightforward, surely. Why is this verse in Hebrews chapter 1 transposing that to saying they worship the Son of God? Well, the context is really, really important in in Deuteronomy. The, The whole of Deuteronomy, the message of Deuteronomy goes like this. First 29 odd uh, chapters. Here's how you must live. Next couple of chapters, but you won't. So to use a theological word, you're stuffed. You are in massive trouble. Deuteronomy 32 But God will have mercy. God will somehow make atonement, pay the penalty of your sins. God will somehow bring you back. Rejoice, you nations, with his people. Let all God's angels worship him. He will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies Make atonement for his land and people. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 have already established that all of God's intended victories are now given over to the Son. He is the one who will rule over the whole world. He will live forever. He will win God's victories. And what the the writer of the Hebrews is saying, so in fact he who wins God's victories, God's Deuteronomy 32 victory, is to be worshipped. Because somehow he has become indistinguishable from God. In fact, says our writer to the Hebrews, if you pay careful attention, I hope everybody still is, if you pay careful attention, you will see that actually in the pages of the Old Testament. Psalm 45, he quotes it in verse 8. About the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Psalm 45 is clearly a hymn to the king of Israel on his wedding day. It is a wonderful and beautiful hymn. And then right in the middle of this wonderful hymn, to the, to the king of Israel, the, the writer of the song says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Now, Jews are fierce monotheists. The king was not God. That should have been taken out of the song right at the beginning. And yet somehow, 
in the wisdom of God and in the wisdom of the Jewish people, they kept it faithfully in there. Though the writer should rightly have been taken outside and stoned to death for even writing it. Because it was blasphemy. And generation upon generation, you can, you can read it if you look at the ancient Jewish um, interpreters, wrestled with this. How on earth, in the middle of this psalm, can he suddenly start calling this king God? Well, if they'd looked carefully at their Old Testament, they'd have known why. Because again and again, we find that this human king is promised to, that he will do everything that God will do. There's a fascinating bit in Deuteronomy 32 where God says, when he's going to have mercy on his people, I am he, I'm the only God, the unique God. I'm going to do it. But all that pertains to the unique, the one and only God is now transferring over to this future king. So, next stage in his argument, verses 10 to 12. Actually, when you read Old Testament statements about the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, they equally apply to Jesus, the Son. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same forever, and your years will never end. It was clearly and obviously that psalm about the Lord God. But the Son is going to be eternal as well. Reign forever and ever. Indeed, we can see him as the one who created, the one who upholds, the one who lives forever. But still as a man, verse 13, he will rule from God's throne. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's quoting from Psalm 110 where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It is clearly to a future king who will also be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to see that in a few, few weeks. But for now, he's, he's just pointing out that this future king, whom David calls my Lord, is not going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He's going to sit at God's right hand. But as someone who is also very human, now I may, you see why I said pay careful attention. Um, <laughs> You may have found that hard word. Let me, let me summarize it and bring it together. The whole Bible says that we need a man who is God. 
the whole Bible says that we need someone in whom, this is a phraseology that, that John Stott, the great Christian author and leader, used to use, the one in whom the should and the could come together. In other words, human beings should sort out this world and themselves. We instinctively sense that we should be able to run this world better. We sense in ourselves that we should pay the penalty for the things we personally have done wrong. The sins that we personally have committed. Every single person bears in themselves that, that deep sense of we humans made the mess, we humans should sort it out. And the Bible says absolutely, that is absolutely right. That is, that is true from beginning to end in the Bible. Human beings are responsible and we should be able to sort it out, but we can't. That's what the Bible says. Only God could. Only God by stepping in and sorting out this world. Only God by making atonement. Deuteronomy 32. By finding a way of paying for our sins so that we don't have to because we could never bear the weight of it. Only God could. And in Jesus, the should, it should be a human. And the could, only God could do it, come together. And finally come together on the cross, where God the Son pays the penalty for our sins by dying. And at the resurrection, where God the Son rises again to defeat even the forces of death. A human being paying for our sins and rising to eternal life. God paying for our sins and establishing eternal life. And that is the message of the whole Bible. And it's the message of your whole life. Whether you accept that or whether you reject that is the decisive thing for your whole life. It's the only thing that will actually resolve all of those things that you and I feel are wrong in ourselves and in our world. There is no king or queen who is going to do that? Only Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you have no choice but to submit to him and put our trust in him with everything that we have and are. You see, people drift away 
because they lose touch of that with that. They drift away because they think it's just a, a, set of, a, a set of bits of wisdom and, hey, there's better wisdom out here in the world. Or they, they drift away because they think, well, it was just a way of life and it was quite nice being part of the community. But, uh, but you know, I found a better community now, so I'm off to my chess club or whatever else it, uh, whatever else it is. They, they, they drift away because they think, well, it was, it was just a set of laws and I can follow those laws whether I, you know, I'm a, overtly a worshipper or, or not. I can just get on with it. They drift away because they think, it's, well, it's just about a, a spiritual experience and I, I can have spiritual experiences without, without necessarily all this, this, this give your whole self to Jesus stuff. They drift away because they don't pay caref- careful attention. They never got the moorings right in the first place. And they fell asleep while the moorings worked loose and they drifted further and further from the land. Your eternal destiny rests on you seeing that Jesus is the centerpiece of the whole of history, the whole history of creation, the whole message of the Bible and of your whole life. And if he is not, you will drift away. And I don't care how superficially good your life looks. You're heading for the open sea. And there's no adult captain on board. What should you do with that? Should you read your Bible more closely? Should you pray more seriously? Should you think hard about this crisis that is hitting your life now and not just apply superficial answers to it, but supply real answers which will anchor you to Jesus? Should you put your faith in Jesus for the first time? The knot that you tie to Jesus will determine your, your eternal destiny because there is a current flowing. There is a tide rising. There are mists and storms that are going to come along. And how you respond to Jesus. How much careful attention you pay to him. Will determine your eternal destiny. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we um, bow before you, perhaps realizing afresh, perhaps realizing for the, for the first time, the solemnity of the choices that we face, the seriousness of 
those words we must pay most careful attention. And Lord, we pray that what you have placed in our hearts and our minds this last few minutes, we pray that they will stay with us. And we pray that you will help us to be those who are securely anchored to, to Jesus. But for any of us here who have not even yet cast that anchor, we ask, Lord, that you will help us to do that, to see that. So put our trust in you. But for the majority of us, Lord, who's who started that um, in that down that road, oh Lord, we pray more than anything else that you will so prompt us and that we will so be committed to paying careful attention that we will not be like that snow on the roof, like that ring on the finger. like that boat in the estuary. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.